Good afternoon or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can make a private shopping appointment, enjoy curbside pickup, and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audio book platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Stephen Wright, whose political novel, The Coyotes of Carthage, was published in April. Stephen, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. So before we delve too deeply into the wily ways of American politics, tell us the just the basic setup of The Coyotes of Carthage. Sure. So, uh, you know, the, the quick sort of elevator pitch is the novel follows the experience of, of Andre Ross, who is a political consultant hired by uh, corporations to help influence local elections. He's got a little bit of a past. He served some time when he was a, te- when he was a teenager in juvenile uh, facility. And when we meet him, he's pretty much at his lowest ebb. Um, he's recently returned back from a campaign that has upset many of his, uh, that has upset his employer, employer and many of his colleagues. And uh, his brother's dying, and his fiance has recently left him for another man. And so in the first chapter, he's basically given one last chance, and that's to go to South Carolina and to win what we call a dark money election on behalf of a corporation that wants him to go into the small town or a small county of Carthage and convince them to sell some very pristine land. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say that some of the most riveting books I've ever read are, are books about politics. I mean, All the President's Men comes to mind. I can remember staying up late at night to finish that book. But what are you able to say about American politics in a novel that can't be expressed in the work of nonfiction? Yeah, so one of the things that a novel can do is that it can actually draw upon many different sources and many different experiences. So, you know, a, a good nonfiction book may follow the course of one campaign or may be able to follow one theme. But I think a novel is perhaps better at bringing together different sources. I also think that the novel, in all cases, as opposed to you know, other works of nonfiction, is that the novel excels as an art form in helping people sort of understand the thoughts and feelings of those involved. Yes, a, a nonfiction book can ask someone how they felt, but the duty of a good novel is to put the reader in the shoes of the characters and to make them feel the same ups and downs and ethical and moral considerations that the characters feel. Yeah, yeah. Are there particular political novels that you have admired in the past? You know, uh, there are a bunch. Um, You know, I, I too, read uh, uh, All the King's Men when I was fairly young. You know, it's funny. I read it in college, and then I read it uh, maybe four or five years ago. And, you know, certain parts of it resonated, but some of the parts of it obviously has not. uh, 
aged particularly well. Yeah. A book written in the, in the South about race in the 1950s isn't, all, isn't, isn't going to be as universally beloved as it once was. But, you know, as a, as a sort of a piece of, of fiction, I, I think, you know, it, it, it deserves as much talk as it got for as long as it got. Um, you know, it, it depends how you define politics. I enjoyed the book Wolf Hall, which dealt with, of course, yeah. uh, 16th century politics in, in, in Britain and how the King of England goes on making decisions that determine fates. Um, so, you know, I mean, in some, in some ways, I think the many great American novels to some degree deal with some type of political issue. They might not deal necessarily with campaigns or people running for office, but if you read so many of the books ranging from uh, Huck Finn uh, on down, they're dealing with very, very political issues that affect society, and I, I tend to think that you know, being able to touch upon the political discourse at the time is part of what makes perhaps the great American novel. Yeah, I love the idea of this of a line being drawn from Wolf Hall to Coyotes of Carthage, and this idea that you know politics has always been politics. You know, it's not. Uh, you you begin the book with two epigrams from two different Supreme Court justices on opposite sides of the Citizens United decision. How do you think that ruling changed American politics, and and did that ruling make this particular novel possible? Yeah. So. Um as I'm sure most people listening will appreciate, uh, a few years ago, or, and gosh, it's actually probably been a little over a decade now, mm-hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called Citizens United, and that's where we have have gotten the phrase uh, corporations are people. And basically the idea of Citizens United is that corporations, uh, which had once been limited in how much influence they can have on election, specifically how much money they can spend on election, Citizens United pretty much obliterated any type of limitations. So now corporations can spend large untold amounts of money, and what makes the money dark is they can do it anonymously. So, you know, the big corporations that already have tremendous influence can now use their money and their power in an anonymous way to help influence elections. And that's exactly the plot of of Coyotes of Carthage. Andre is hired by a mining corporation that wants to spend a decent fraction of a million dollars to convince the small town people to sell a pristine piece of land. So it definitely would not have been possible without Citizens United. This novel is filled with, I have to say, often unpleasant details about the way in which these professional political operatives go into a community and manipulate voters. What is your what's your own personal political experience and how did you learn about this world of sort of the, the, the dark side of, of political funding and manipulation? Yeah, so before I started writing seriously, I'm a lawyer by trade. I'm currently a law professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. But for about five years, I worked as a voting rights lawyer in the United States Department of Justice. And that's the arm of the federal government that ensures that people's constitutional voting rights are enforced or are enforced and protected. And so I specialize in cases primarily affecting uh, militaries and overseas voters, college students, and people of color. And so as part of that exercise as part of as part of my duty, I would go into small towns and figure out why the election was broken. Sometimes it was money, sometimes it was 
partisan politics had gone too far. Sometimes it was race. Sometimes it was just ignorance of the law. And I had to go into those towns and sort of figure out what was going on. Mm. And oftentimes, you know, in small towns where nobody's sort of looking, nobody's paying attention, they're not often always following the rules as they should. And so I was able to borrow upon that experience going into small towns like Jasper, Texas, or the towns that I went to in Louisiana and Mississippi to to help inform the town that ends up uh, being revealed on the page in the Coyotes of Carthage. Now, I'm always fascinated by the way books open. And this book begins with Andre on his way to work observing two different characters. Um, And both of these characters seem to be pretending to be someone that they're not. One of them is a young pickpocket, and one of them is an apparently homeless man. How do how do those two interactions do you think sort of set the tone for the novel and for what's to come? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think it's almost a universal truism shared by almost all writers that the first chapter must teach the reader or at least share with the reader what the rules of the novel was. And so I wanted it to make sure that people sort of understood, you know, this book isn't the, the characters in this book aren't going to be what they necessarily appear to be uh, on face value. In fact, the, cam- the entire campaign that Andre runs is actually uses the face of other people to actually engage in the wrongdoing that they engage in. But more importantly, I wanted people to sort of understand upfront what the tone of the novel was. The second person pretending to be a veteran, for example, I mean, it, it's a very sort of cynical look. And I wanted people to sort of understand that that cynicism or that skepticism would be a current that sort of runs from the first page to the last page. So, you know, if you read if you read the first six, seven pages and you're completely turned out, turned turned off, then the remaining three hundred and five pages <laughs> are not going to be for you. And I love this this pickpocket character too, because you sort of you let us see him operating and you lure the reader into using our own prejudices to imagine what he looks like. And then you tell us that he's like a prep school kid. You know, he's not yeah. what most readers probably are imagining when you start to talk about a pickpocket working the subway, you know. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the pickpocket, I think, is important for a couple things. I mean, I hope at the at the end of that first page, when you're reading about the pickpocket, you know that at least the narrative voice, the third-person narrator, is rooting for the pickpocket, right? Yeah. You're rooting for the guy who is uh, committing a crime. And once again, it's an example of, you know, the pickpocket is clearly doing wrong, but hopefully the reader will sort of appreciate it, not only that he's doing wrong and that he's rooting for him, but that he's not who he seems. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about Andre's background, and uh, my guess is that his background is not typical for a political operative. Tell, tell us a little more about his past and, and how that affects him in his, in his job in the present and particularly in his work in Carthage County. Yeah, so we know that uh, he grew up, he grows up, he grows up fairly poor. This, this information is revealed fairly early in the, in the first uh, chapter or two. And we know that he has served time in a juvenile del- juvenile facility. You know, I can tell you that Andre was largely shaped by a lot of my own experiences. So like I said, you know, I was a voting rights lawyer for the Department of Justice, but then I left, and when I started taking writing seriously, or at least doing it more, more full-time, I would occasionally also take jobs around Wisconsin as 
a court-appointed lawyer. And I, in particular, I specialize in appeals, which, you know, probably doesn't surprise anybody who writes. Appeals are mostly writing documents. Yeah. Um, and I would go into the prisons in Wisconsin, the, the maximum security prisons, uh, Waupon, Dodge, Stanley, those facilities for people familiar with Wisconsin, and I would introduce myself to the, to the, to the client. And there's, a, there's sort of something that happens, obviously, when, the, when a attorney and a client meet for the first time, where you have to build trust, and you're just talking, and you're just sharing. And inevitably, while I was trying to find out whether you know, my client had any valid appellate claims, they would just sort of be fascinated with my experience at the DOJ doing elections. And I think you know, the, the general consensus, and it was almost every single time with every single client that I talked to, they were always sort of, they always had a great deal of skepticism and cynicism towards uh, political actors and politicians, mm. in part because in Wisconsin district attorneys and judges are elected, so they were very skeptical about those, but they were also skeptical about legislators and congressmen and the president and so forth. And so, you know, they would inevitably turn to me and say, Steve, you know, election law and criminal law aren't all that different. Politicians are just criminals who haven't, who aren't being forced to go to jail. Yeah. And so that cynicism is basically what the impetus for Dre was. I was thinking, what if one of these guys that I had met and represented got out and decided to run for office, and they had that type of cynicism? And that ended up being the basis of where Dre came from. Now, one of the things about his background um, that, I, that, to me, sort of adds this extra layer of tension to the to the novel is, you know, he's he's kind of on his last straw at work. If this job doesn't doesn't pan out, then he's probably going to lose his job. And because he has a criminal record, the threat of a loss of job is especially uh, dire to him. Can you can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of of people in that situation finding work when they have a criminal record, even if it's long, long ago? Yeah, so it's huge. So in 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 the law and among law professors, we call this the collateral consequences of conviction, which is just a bunch of fancy words to say that your conviction stays with you for a very long time. And so from state to state, it varies, right? Obviously, as we enter the federal election cycle, the disenfranchisement of voters who have uh, the disenfranchisement of individuals with felonies on their record remains a big topic of national discussion. Florida, as you know, has recently rethought the way that it deals with felons and voting. So that's perhaps one in the more prominent. But we also know that there are lots of different other consequences. Everything from you can't get public housing to you may be eligible for a lot of sort of social welfare benefits. But also there's the stigma. And people, you know, when they conduct background checks of individuals applying for jobs, it's not unusual for them to do a criminal background check. And sometimes some of those employers use that criminal background check to disqualify otherwise qualified individuals from taking the job. So the collateral consequences of conviction, you know, they can be quite devastating. And, you know, I think sometimes people are comfortable with that, especially for people who have committed a more serious crime, you know, the sort of horrific, unspeakable crimes. But the collateral consequences of conviction also happen sometimes to individuals who commit minor misdemeanors or even low-grade felonies, you know, crimes that I think most people are more than happy to excuse, especially if someone has served some type of punishment for that crime. You write about Andre's place of employment, and this is a quote from the book. The firm sought employees with a flexible moral code 
political mercenaries happy to manipulate entire communities to earn a buck. Now, we've been talking about cynicism a little bit, and this may seem like a cynical question for me, but is there any place left for morality in American politics? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think uh, especially as we enter the 2020 cycle and we've already started to see how sort of brutal the election will be and sort of the uh, the corners that the, care, that the candidates are going to, both in the presidential election as well as some of the contested uh, Senate elections, they're, they're just turning really, really sort of nasty. Um, and, you know, I think no matter on what side you're on, uh, odds are you think that the other side is probably up to some dirty tricks and <laughs> you're thinking that, uh, you know, people are sort of punching below the belt. Um, you know, but I, I think, you know, as I watch the news, so much of the debate, whether it, uh, the debate on the issues that I think are at the forefront of our of our political discussion, whether it's, you know, the coronavirus and wearing masks or whether it's how we react to the murder of black men by police, they're fundamentally just causing people to sort of retreat into their tribal corners, and therefore they become morality issues. They, they become, this is what I want this country to be about, and this is not what I want this country to be about. And so, yeah, I mean, I think whenever you have people who sort of dig in in tribes and they start making things a morality issue, you, there's always going to be the opportunity for somebody to come in and exploit those feelings. Yeah, yeah. Early in the novel, Andre travels from urban Washington, D.C., where his um, where his company is located, to this rural part of South Carolina where he's going to conduct this campaign. What is it about the rural South and, and that area in particular that made you want to set the novel there? So I think there were two things. The, the first is um, when I... Um, the Coyotes of Carthage it takes place over about 13 weeks, and I believe it's either you know five or six different sections. When I set out to write the novel, I wanted to use a state that that really had poor campaign finance rules. So I went about just researching, you know, what states have actually no very good campaign finance rules, and I ended up with like three or four in South Carolina was at the bottom. And South Carolina actually has some laws that outline how you get an initiative on the ballot. And it says, you know, after event A, 15 days have to pass, then something has to happen. And after that, 25 days has to happen. And after that, 30 days, something has to happen. And so as a writer, when you see that, you think, oh, my goodness, I have a structure. I see these laws and, oh, my goodness, you know, that seems like chapter one through four. And then 15 days later, that seems like chapter eight. And so what really was appealing in part to me about South Carolina was that I knew that, indeed, what I was writing really could happen under South Carolina law. Now, let me be clear, there were three or four states that had equally sort of troubling uh, troubling procedures, but I knew South Carolina well. Um, I had spent a lot of time in South Carolina. I knew the rural South pretty well. You know, my family moved around a great deal when I grew, grew up, but I, I considered spent most of my life in the South. I was born in Nashville. I graduated from high school in Augusta, Georgia. I went to college and grad school in North Carolina. Uh, my first job and my family now lives in Arkansas. So my ties to the South, I thought, were pretty solid and pretty strong. And I knew I could use those experiences to actually make flesh and bone, to make real and vivid uh, a community like Carthage. Yeah. 
Now, I might be wrong about this, but I'm guessing that most people who read novels are going to th- not really be in favor of this proposal that Andre is trying to get passed by the voters of, of Carthage County. How do you make a protagonist relatable and keep us cheering for him even when we don't necessarily want him to achieve his goal? Yeah, I mean, the the trick of the antihero is always really different. My, I, I thought about that a lot, and I'll be honest, I think the answer is actually Brendan. So Andre has a sidekick yeah. who I think, uh, I, I think it is hard not to love the sidekick. You know, he's a young man, 21, 22, very good looking, very bright, very earnest. He adores Andre. He wants this thing to happen. But he's like the reader. He's going to be very skeptical. He's skeptical of their mission. He's skeptical of... of of, on, of of Andre, but he wants to do good, and then so in some ways, Brendan ends up being that substitute, right? The the novel, the, the I can see there's the writer of a novel that a lot of people will just fundamentally ha- not be able to either relate or get on board with Andre, but I don't think that's true for Brendan. I, I think you know once you read read the book, my hope is that you will fall in love with him, but I don't think that he's a particularly objectionable character. So what I tried to do was invest a great deal of charm in Brendan to make up for any skepticism that the reader might have about Dre. And I think, like, to me, a really good example of that is a scene where they're they're driving around, kind of looking at this piece of property that is potentially going to be sold to the mining company, uh, and they come across this this sort of organic market, and their reactions to it are almost completely different. Brendan is like, oh, let's buy all this stuff and make all this great food. And Andre's just rolling his eyes about how expensive it is. And 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 the reader knows that it, it'll be gone if, if the initiative goes through. And to me, that makes a really interesting sort of triangle of reactions to that, that particular little scene. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the charms of Brendan is that he has such enthusiasm for everything. But, uh, you know, he doesn't always fully appreciate the big picture of how things are going to turn out. And I'll be honest, Brendan was large, so I, I now teach. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. And so Brendan was, in a, was sort of a I, – I borrowed quite heavily from many of my students <laughs> To, to create Brendan, right? And, you know, my students at the University of Wisconsin, they're amazing, they're smart, they're earnest, they're hardworking, but they're young, and they don't always fully, and, and they need a little bit more life experience to fully appreciate the world that they see around them. And so I try to make Brendan that kind of person. Like, I, I want people to really like him, I want people to believe in him, but I want people also to know that he's a little bit unreliable, right, because yeah. he's just yeah. so young. Yeah, yeah. So we, you talked about a little bit about the gap between the reader and and Andre, the the protagonist, or as you say, the antihero. But I think for there may also be a gap between the reader and the people of Carthage County. I mean, my guess is again that the, the your typical reader is going to live in a pretty different world from this world of very rural, poor, white South Carolina. How do you bridge that gap between the reader and Carthage? without having the locals just sort of become cartoon versions of of southern stereotypes. Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple things, right? So, you know, when I, I also teach creative writing, and we often talk about 
sense of community and we talk about setting. And I think there's sort of two or three ways that, that a writer can do that, right? One is just to be sort of vivid in the world building, right? To, to actually be very detailed in thinking about what the physical community looks like, right? And then at the same time, throughout the book, there are just certain details that to me at least rang true from my experience, whether it's, you know, the front page of a local local newspaper or, you know, what's happening in at the local town square, and then making that feel very real. But I really think the key to it is that when you have representatives of the communities, in this case, you know, Charlene and Tyler, or you're talking about uh, the Boshears, you know, those individuals have to, you have to spend a lot of time making those characters more than stereotypes. And I think if you can flush out those characters and make them real and build a connection between the reader and those characters, then you will succeed in building a bond between the reader and the community, but also making sure that that community just is and, you know, a cartoonist sort of stereotype. Yeah. I like the way that the, the first thing they see in the community is this, it's it's kind of a truck stop. It's like a gas station with a, with a store attached to it. And for so many of us who drive through America, that's all we see of a, of a small rural community. You know, we pull in, we get gas, we, we grab a Coke or some chips and we, and we're on our way. And, and so that's kind of where they begin and then they start to peel back the layers and see, you know, how much more there is. Yeah, you know, I mean, in my in my observation, in every town in the South, no matter how large or how small, there's always going to be that type of gas station. And for some reason, there's always going to be a Chinese food restaurant. <laughs> and so, you know, as you travel through these communities, there are certain things that are almost always going to be there. But then the question becomes like, okay, you, you've driven on the interstate or you've driven on the state bypass and you've gone through the small community. What happens if you had turned left rather than you turn right, right? What right, if rather yeah. you had, what if, instead of passing through the community, you had decided to actually drive through the community. And, you know, especially in a lot of rural towns in the South, and actually rural towns in the Midwest, too. Uh, I'm now in Wisconsin. What you end up seeing is a town that's pretty scattered by most standards, right? But the town square is gone. And instead, you know, there are sort of these communities where people live, whether it's a trailer community or or a gated community. And then there's a random Walmart or a random Home Depot or that type of thing. And so what communities fundamentally look like, I think, is, is, is changing in many small towns. Um, and part of what my job was to sort of reveal, you know, why that change is happening and what that change has, has meant for communities like Carthage. Yeah, yeah. Andre says he, he believes that voters vote on a ballot of initiative not based on a true understanding of complicated policy proposals, but just on gut instinct. How much yeah. of voting, and especially in this current climate, as you described it, how much voting do you think is emotional rather than intellectual? Uh, I, I think it's, I think is a large amount of it. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, again, as we sort of look at the issues that are facing the country, whether it's um, policing or COVID. So much of the solutions to those require not only community involvement, but they require a great deal of expertise, right? Literally, the COVID required, the COVID crisis requires us to rely upon doctors 
right, rely upon epidemiology, rely upon all these different specialties who know how viruses work, how we treat people to do that. And the sad part is that not all of us, in fact, most of us are probably very poorly equipped to understand what's going on. And so we have to rely upon experts. We have to rely upon the Dr. Fauci to to explain to us what's going on, to contextualize what's going on, to tell us, you know, this is good or this is bad. And that's not to say that we can't interrogate that. In fact, we should interrogate that. But, you know, the experts have gone to school for 5, 10, 20 years. They've studied this their entire life. There's never any way that we're going to know it, right? And so what we're not talking about actually is an intellectual argument, we're talking about trust. And when we're talking about trust, right, we're in some ways talking a little bit um, emotional and we're talking a little bit intellectual. And so I think the same is true of police departments, right? When people talk about defunding the police or when people talk about, you know, police reforms, part, part of it is just trust. Do you trust that the experts are giving you the whole story and do you trust their information enough, in some cases, with your life? And I think in particular, as we start sending people, as we start having the debate over whether children need to go to school, that trust element is going to be, uh, is, is going to be perhaps the most important factor that parents and communities use to go forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about race for just a moment. Andre's black and Carthage County is almost exclusively white. What, what role do you see race playing in the novel? So, uh, you know, I... I, you know, I think I, I'm always reminded of Toni Morrison, and, and she said that basically, you know, any time that you have a, a black writer writing a black character, race is going to play a huge role yeah. in the narrative. You know, I mean, Dre is based largely upon, I think, not only my experience, but many African-Americans' experiences of going into a community and just feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you from my own experience that I live in Wisconsin, and sometimes I go into the counties and go into some of the counties, up, especially up north, where, you know, there there isn't a great deal of diversity, where it's 90, 99% uh, uh, white. And, you know... It, it could be just something in my mind. It could be something real. But you sort of feel, feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, I, I don't think that experience is particularly unique. But for that reason, Andre in particular never feels quite comfortable in Carthage. And he has to rely upon other people to sort of serve as, as a mouthpiece for him. Do you, do you feel like that this sort of cresting wave of the Black Lives Matter movement that that has happened really just in the two and a half months since the novel was published. Does it cast the novel in a in a fresh light or in a different light? So, you know, so I wrote the novel, you know, obviously I, I finished the novel well over a year ago. I was reminded by a friend that there's actually a scene of of violence where the police, uh, you know, put their knee on someone's neck. And, you know, those moments, I think, in the novel in particular, you know, I think readers who read it before, before uh, uh, Mr. Floyd's murder are going to read those scenes perhaps very differently now. I I acknowledge that. Um, But, you know, I do think it sort of changes things. You know, I mean... 
the, the, the novel at its core is a political novel, but there's a lot of criminal justice subtext, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of criminal justice subtext about Dre's background and the collateral consequences of his conviction, and also, you know, just fundamentally how comfortable he feels around police officers. There's a scene in the book where, you know, he's just sitting and he and Brendan are sitting in the car, and then the police car comes next to him, and, you know, he starts to have a, a slow panic attack, yeah. a slow anxiety yeah. attack. And so, you know, those moments I think are, are real. I think that they're authentic. But I, you know, what I, what I, one of the, one of the consequences I think of our current political debate on race is I think more readers will appreciate that, that moment is more authentic than, than, you know, the number of readers say three, as you say, three months, three months ago. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly for me, that was a very powerful moment. And, and it, you know, it would have it would have been three or four months ago, but I I as a white person feel like I understand a little bit more than I did three months ago, and I've talked to friends who have been you know pulled over for driving while black, and and so I can kind of it made it a little bit easier for me to kind of get into Dre's head at that moment and understand why it was such a, a panicky feeling for him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a couple moments over that. And the, perhaps the one thing that I would change is that um, during the course of that, Andre just presumes that Brendan will never understand. And he doesn't even try to engage him in a conversation. And so, you know, in, in thinking about it now, especially in terms of our, our current discourse, I think I perhaps would have at least given Brendan a chance. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things Andre has to do when he gets to town is he has to hire what's called a straw man. This is the this is sort of the face of his organization who's going to go around and get the signatures on the uh, on the petitions and, and all this sorts of stuff. And I'm really struck by the when he when this happens, I'm struck by the ease with which people who have money can manipulate people who don't have money. Um, and, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and, and, and does that reveal sort of cracks in the whole idea of democracy? It does reveal cracks in the whole idea of democracy. But, you know, I, I've long sort of believed that that is in some ways the entire narrative of the South, right? I mean, you know, whether it was fundamentally the creation of the Confederacy, you know, convincing individuals who live in sort of small towns and rural communities who could barely feed their family to all of a sudden stand up for these giant principles of, you know, states' rights all towards the end of preserving an economic injustice like slavery. So, you know, the idea that rich people are manipulating poor people in the South, I, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that's, a tr- I don't think that's a new narrative in the United no. States anywhere, <laughs> anywhere, but I don't particularly think it's a new narrative for South Carolina. Yeah. And so the novel sort of just takes that into its modern iteration, right? Rather than call, asking people to take up arms to rebel against the Union, the rich people in the community are telling people to sort of, to rally around uh, attacking some of the institutions within the county that people don't like. Um, And so, you know, obviously, you know, it's a great part of, I shouldn't say great, but a significant part of our national discourse right now, what we're talking about, just fundamentally, um, you know, wealth and the morality of, of wealth and how people use wealth to change their lot in life or to change the way that they perceive citizenship or the way that they are perceived as citizens. Mm-hmm. And I do hope that the book tries to explore that a little bit. Well, we, we've talked some about trust and you talked about, um, you know, Andre kind of manipulating the 
trust and the mistrust of of the locals. And, and two of the institutions that he sort of leverages mistrust against are the media and the government. And I think it's certainly fair to say that uh, on on all sides right now, there's a lot of mistrust of, of those two institutions. Why why do so many people resent the very institutions that are supposed to be the ones that are looking out for our best interests? Yeah. So I guess the first thing I should say is that, you know, I started writing this book in, I think, 2014. And so a lot of these ideas were formed well before, you know, the, the current political climate. But, you know, I mean... I think there's a, a lot of different reasons why those type of things happen. I think distrust, particularly of local elections, tends to happen for a lot of different reasons because part of the part of what election, uh, local elections and local elected officials do is they make decisions, and the decisions are often very much in your face, right? The school board decides what books your children are going to read. The sanitation board decides what day your trash is going to be picked up. Your local judge, your prosecutor, and police officers decide what crimes people are going to go for. And so so when people are making decisions right in, right in the face of, of, of their constituents, there's more opportunities for people to disagree, right? There's more opportunities for people to see the connection between a government decision and how it impacts their lives. I don't know if that's always true with federal decisions, right? Like when Congress passes a, a new tax bill, I don't know if I immediately sort of figure out, you know, yeah. how that's going to affect me, right? Um, so when, when local elected officials are making local decisions, I think I think there's an oppor- a greater opportunity for people to weigh in and people make to, to make decisions and people to make criticism. I think what often happens though is in in communities, especially communities like we were talking about, where there's clearly a wealthy class and an underclass. The wealthy class is going to win almost every single time, yeah. right? They they have better resources to organize. They they'll have better candidates to push push forward. They'll be able to put their message out there. And so the so those who aren't a part of that sort of ruling class grow very, very frustrated, right? And so part of what Andre has to do is he begins the book by talking to some of the people in the upper class, but they ultimately decide to go with people in the underclass because they think that they can work up some of those people in the underclass who haven't quite felt represented, who haven't heard their voices in the current political conversation. So Andre, in his sort of cynicism about the electorate, says something that I have to think that this sentence is even more relevant today as we talk about masks and social distancing and everything than it was when when you wrote it. But he says, Americans enjoy nothing more than denying their neighbor's happiness. What does he mean by that? Uh, I I think that's true. I mean, you know, and and perhaps it's not uh, limited to Americans. Perhaps it's a universal truth. But the number of times where I where just as a lawyer or a constitutional lawyer, I see somebody doing something, living their life. And then you see someone come in and just say, you can't do that. Right. That, you know, even when it's like none of their business, I think that happens a lot. And, you know, I think in some ways, in some ways, you know, the Constitution has good and bad parts to it. But one of the things that I think the Bill of Rights tried to do was to prevent um, was trying to prevent the majority from sort of intervening into a minority's, whether it's a political minority or religious minority at that time, preventing them to sort of just come in and telling people how to run their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think we see that a, a, a lot these days, whether it's 
um, you know, especially in LGBTQ issues. We see it a lot in race. But yeah, I think that, you know, there's some people, <laughs> that, that there's a healthy number of Americans who sort of see their identity as using the law to prevent other people from achieving their own happiness. Yeah, yeah. So there's a point in the novel where you actually do mention the danger that coyotes pose yeah. in Carthage County. Uh, and I'm always curious about the stories behind titles, and I suspect there's more to your title than just the fact that there are a few coyotes wandering around the county. Tell, tell us about the title and why you chose it. So the, the, the title's a funny story because it's like the fourth title uh, that we <laughs> ended up coming The first title was uh, from the Citizens United line. You know, we talked how Justice Scalia wrote about corporations or people, and, and Justice Scalia was an originalist, so he tied it to some ideas that were going on in the nation around the time of the independence. In the dissent, uh, Justice Stevens, and I think we still kept that part of the dissent in the novel, was, uh, was sort of being sarcastic, was sort of being cynical. He's saying, you know, Justice Scalia, you're not the guardian of ancient values. So the original title of the book was Guardians of Ancient Values. I told it to a couple friends, and they just hated it. Um, <laughs> You know, and it was during the time that uh, Guardian of the Galaxies was out. I, I was so people say, were like, that's, that's people the first are going to confuse it. <laughs> They're going to pick up the book and think it's a sci-fi Marvel action book. And do you know how disappointed they're going to be? <laughs> so, you know, I was really, really excited about it. But then I just sort of got worn down. Like, it became a running joke. Like, you know, what what movie are you going to go see tonight? We're going to go see The Guardian of Ancient Values. <laughs> um, so people were just sort of relentless. And then I came up with like two or three other ones and I think it was finally in the end when I was talking to my agent um, you know we had like a working title and I didn't even believe what it was but um, you know we thought you know what's what's a motif that runs throughout it right what's an image or idea that sort of runs throughout it that sort of has a dual meaning and we sort of knew the coyotes coyotes was that all the time but we didn't know to put it in in the novel and so you know we ended up coming up with coyotes of carthage basically because it has alliteration in it but also because it sort of had that double edge of of, of meaning of the coyote motif yeah, yeah well we like to end every episode of inside the writer's studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into you as well. So if you're ready, we will begin. Excellent. What word do you love to work into your writing? Appreciate. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Impacted. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, at my desk. Where could you never write? At a coffee house. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Ooh, uh, semicolon use. Uh, what was the first book you remember reading? Uh, a collection of, of Sherlock Holmes. What are you reading now? Uh, I'm reading The Swiss Family Robinson. Oh, I, you know, we just rewatched that Disney movie the other day. Boy, uh, it does not hold up in, a, in, in our more modern, uh, enlightened climate, I, I gotta say. But I loved it as a child. <laughs> the book doesn't do much better, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what book would you like to have written? Uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Oh, uh, 
a sci-fi wizard book. Or, no, actually a, uh, a novelization of a Star Trek movie. Oh, great. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I enjoyed that. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Stephen Wright, whose novel, The Coyotes of Carthage, is available wherever books are sold. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I've been out running a lot this summer, and when I'm on the road, I like to do two things. Maintain a safe distance from other pedestrians, and listen to audiobooks from Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to the author of Crazy Rich Asians, Kevin Kwan, about his new novel, Sex and Vanity. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>